Amen. Um, good morning, Four Oaks. I'm Paul Gilbert, uh, lead pastor. So glad that you were here. Dads, make sure to slide by the photo booth outside on the way out today. Um, some of you were looking dapper, and some of you were just looking in general. You know, you know what I'm saying? Anyway, turning your Bibles to, to Genesis chapter 4. You know, one of my favorite things actually in these special Sundays where we'll grab photos of families and and, and such, is that the children's staff will get these pictures developed and they'll hang them out on the little clothesline out in the hall so you can pick up in the next week or two. But, but sometimes I love just kind of going by the photos and, and looking at different families, particularly the sibling groups. It's always fun to find out who looks like whom, who looks like mom, who looks like dad. Um, who was clearly mad at one another on the way to church in the morning. I mean, we, all families have these sort of, these sort of photos, right? And, and, and it's a reminder that, that, you know, all throughout history, we've been fascinated with, with sibling groups. We think about the Jackson Five or the Kennedys, or for all of you hippies in here, the Doobie Brothers, who actually weren't related. But nonetheless, you get it. But there's also been a number of famous, very famous, infamous sibling rivalries, so we think about Serena and Venus Williams battling out on the tennis courts, or if you want to go historical, you know, there's, there's Mary and Anne Bolin who were both head over heels in love with Henry VIII. Did you get that? Head over heels in love. Okay, anyway, one that you might not be so familiar with were two German brothers named Adolf and Rudolf, if you can imagine. Adolf and Rudolf Dassler, they were in the early 20th century, they founded a little tiny shoe company in a, in a small German village. And, and, the, and the shoes were great, but the relationship with the brothers was not so great. They didn't really like each other. And so after being successful in the shoe business for about 20 years, they decided to part ways. And each started their own shoe company in the city that they both lived. And one was on one side of the river and one was on the other side of the river. And it was kind of like having two gangs or two teams in the same town. And you weren't supposed to date somebody from the rival shoe company. And you weren't, it was, it was that sort of atmosphere. Those two shoe companies actually went on to become, and I'm not making this up, Puma and Adidas. And um, I know I'm not making that up because I read it on the interwebs, and certainly it's got to be true. But undoubtedly, undoubtedly, whether you've been in church all your life or not at all, the most famous or infamous sibling rivalry in the history of the world is no doubt Cain and Abel. And that's where we're going this morning on Father's Day. You know, last week we talked about the fall and we saw how Adam and Eve were deceived by the, the serpent. And, and we sort of traced out sort of the consequences or, the fall, or, or sort of the fallout from that. Where we saw in Genesis 3 that, that God said there's going to be two lines of people. There's going to be two groups of people, two families, so to speak, that are going to characterize the history of the world, and every single person is going to fit into one of these two families. Every person in this auditorium this morning is a part of one of these two families. The first family is, is, is a natural family. It's a biological family. It's a family of the flesh. It's a family that God's Word says is turned against the face of God, that doesn't want to worship Him, doesn't want to know Him, doesn't want to walk with Him. But simultaneously, out of that family, God is calling a spiritual family. 
a family that will walk with him, that will worship him, that will know him. And what we are going to be doing over these next couple of weeks is taking kind of what we would call an up-and-close family portrait of each of these families, the natural and the spiritual. And today, we're going to look at the line of Cain. This is much more than simply a story of, of sibling rivalry, uh, betrayal, and murder, although it is that. This is going to tell us something about the nature of man and the world that we live in. And so we're, we're entitling this one, The Fallout from the Fall. And I have to credit Pastor Scott for, for that title. Us pastors don't do really much original, but that came from him. And so there we go. Shout out to you, Scott. That's where we're going to be. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 24 this morning from Genesis. We usually stand, but we're not this morning. It's, it's kind of a little bit of a lengthier passage. You can follow along on the screen um, if you don't have your own Bibles. Let's begin in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So, so Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground that shall no longer yield to you its strength, you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Node, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahuliel, and Mahuliel fathered Methusiel, and Methusiel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other, Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Khan. He was the foreigner of forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Khan was Nama. 
Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Let's pray. Lord, um, sometimes the distance culturally between what we read in your word and what we live just seems so, so distant, so far away. It's, it's hard for us to relate. But yet you've given us your word because it's to be a mirror. It's to reflect back to us something of ourselves, but more importantly, it's to reflect back something of who you are. And so, Father, we're, we're praying that, and, and Lord, this is a tough text. We're praying that your gospel of grace your character, Father, would shine forth from your word, that we would not look into the mirror and turn away and forget what we look like. No, no. But we would look and stare intently into the law of perfect freedom and thus be transformed by your spirit. Lord, that's what we're praying this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We have three points this morning, and let me just give you the heads up because I've already done this one time. The first two are grim, okay? <laughs> they, they are grim. The last one, not as grim. In fact, it's, it's, it's a pretty good one, I think. But this is not your typical Father's Day ditty. Do you know what I'm saying? Like a little Father's Day happy, like we're going to make a craft after the end of the sermon sort of thing. I mean, this is, this is, I mean, this is some heavy stuff. But I do think there's something really, really important and good and impactful in here for us. And so there's three categories I want us to explore that come from the text. And these are are three things that we need to know about life. These are three things that we need to know about the fallen world in which we live. And I kind of grouped them into three, three sort of categories, and here they are. Three things we need to know about people. That's number one. Number two, Things that we need to know about the world. And then finally, things that we need to know about God. All from Genesis chapter 4. So let's dive in. Things we need to know about people. And by people, I mean like us, right? (laughs) Okay. Uh, Us, man, mankind. Look in verse 3. It says, Cain and Abel... Um, bring this offering to the Lord. Now, the word in the Hebrew literally means to pay tribute. So in the ancient Near East, when, when, where hierarchy was a big deal, if the inferior in a relationship came to the superior of a relationship, they would offer a gift. They would offer a tribute, something that was to be presented that acknowledges my position and then your position. Now, we don't have tons of places anymore where this happens in, the, in a ritual, formalistic way. We, we do see it, if you've watched any of the, the movies on Netflix or Amazon Prime, The Crown or, or Victoria, where when you come into the presence of the queen, what do you do if you're a dude? You bow. What do you do if you're a lady? You curtsy and then curse the queen under your breath because you're not her, right? So that, that's how all these things go. But the, the, the queen does not bow, right? The queen does not curtsy because she is the queen. She is the superior. And, and that's the nature of this offering. The, the brothers are seeking, they're coming before God because they're seeking his favor. And verse 4 tells us what 
happens, and it's some interesting language. It says that, first of all, that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, verse 5, he had no regard. Now, that word regard in Hebrew literally means to look at, to gaze intently upon. It's almost as if the writer is saying, Moses is saying, we could say that God literally couldn't take his eyes off of, of Abel's offering. You know, sometimes at a, at a wedding, you know, people will say, we just couldn't peel our eyes away from the bride. She was beautiful and glorious and, and radiant. And that's the idea here. God, God was just pleased. He was looking intently. He couldn't peel his gaze away from the offering of Abel. But for Cain, it was the exact opposite. We could say that God couldn't bear to look at Cain's offering. You know, sometimes we'll see something come on TV or we'll pass by an accident on the side of the road. And, we, and we, what do we say? I can't even look at it. I can't even watch it. I can't even, ugh, just, I, I can't even go there. That's the sense of the term here. That was God's attitude towards Cain's offering. It disgusted him. It profaned him. It offended him. And we have to ask why. That, that's really the, the pertinent question of the text. Why? A lot of theories. Read the commentary. Some will say it had the... Well, one was offering grain and one was offering blood. And we know that there has to be forgiveness of sins with blood. Or maybe it was because Abel was offering the first fruits and Cain was kind of given the leftovers. We, we, we don't fully know about those little details, but we do know what the New Testament tells us about this offering. Listen, listen to Hebrews 11, chapter, I'm sorry, 11, uh, Hebrews 11, 4, and it, and it gets to the crux of the issue. This is so important for us 21st century religious folk. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, speaking of Abel, he still speaks. You see, whatever else we can say, we know that at its heart, Cain's offering was corrupt because Cain's heart was corrupt. He was not coming to God offering this offering in faith. He was doing something that looked religious on the outside, but in his heart, he wasn't there to submit himself to God. He wasn't there to humble himself. He wasn't there to, to throw himself upon the mercy and grace of God. He came to God because he wanted something from God. He wanted a blessing, all right, but it was a blessing in order to bless himself. And as 21st century religious folk, that should get our attention really quick, right? Because we have all of our contemporary religiosity to, to contend with. You see, we can go to a community group. We can help in Sunday school class. We can even pray with our kids at night. We can attend church faithfully. We can go to a marriage conference. We can do all of those things. And, and by the way, I commend all of those, all right? I commend all of them. But if your heart is not right, if, if it's not born out of an attitude 
and a disposition of faith, of, of submitting yourself to God, of acknowledging who you are before God, you know what the text says? God says he does not regard your offering. doesn't regard my offering. In fact, we get a clear view into Cain's heart the further we go into this passage. Because look at his response once he receives this word from the Lord. It says that in verse 5, what does it tell us? It says he was angry or his face fell. You know, if you want to kind of get to the nuances behind the Hebrew, he was, he was literally crushed. He, wanted to, he was so disappointed, he wanted to lie down sort of in a fetal position in the, in the corner and just sort of cry and pout and get along in self-pity. Let me ask you a question. When, when God says no, or when a dream is unfulfilled, or an expectation is unmet, or things don't go the way that you think they ought to go, what is your response? What is your response? How do, how do you, what, what do you do? What do you, where does your gaze go towards people and circumstances and things that are happening out here? That's where Cain's response goes. Or is there something else that God wants us to do? What I, want to, what, what I want you to see in this passage, and it's so relevant for us, even thousands of years later, is the utter lack of curiosity on Cain's part about why God rejected his offering. Just an utter lack of, of curiosity. No, God, what are you trying to teach me? God, what are you trying to show me? God, what, where, where do I see your grace in this no in my life? Where, where, do I see, where do I see your grace in this failed opportunity? Where do I see your grace in this, in the, in this sort of this, this obstacle that you've thrown seemingly in front of me? What's your response? What's my response? You see, God in this passage is trying to tell Cain something. He's trying to tell Cain something. If he wasn't trying to tell Cain something, he would just have wiped him out. It would have been all over. But he proceeds to engage in this dialogue with Cain because he wants Cain to understand what's going on in his heart. This is God's grace to Cain. Look at verse 7. He wants to warn Cain, first of all, Cain's sin is crouching. It wants to rule over you. It wants to dominate you. It wants to enslave you. Cain, you think you want to make a go of this on your own? You think you want to live the autonomous, free, flourishing life apart of me, apart from me? But it doesn't work. Then in verse eight, you maybe this is your first time in church in twenty years, but you probably know this part well. Look at verse eight. It says that Cain spoke to Abel. What, is that, what does that mean? It means a sharp confrontation. See, see Cain's, Cain's focus, Cain's microscope, it wasn't, it wasn't oriented toward his heart. It wasn't oriented to what's happening here. It wasn't oriented to what's going on between him and God. It was oriented towards Abel. So it says he spoke to Abel. He rose up. Literally, he was roused. Kind of like you, you, you walk into your teenager's 
bedroom on a summer morning and it's 1130. I'm just not, not in our house. It, we, we do 530 every, every single morning. And you rouse your teenager, right? You rouse your child. It's like awaking a grizzly bear from hibernation in the middle of winter, right? That's that sort of Cain's disposition. Why was he so angry with Cain? Why was he so angry with Cain? We could spend a couple of sermons on, on this, but let me just offer this one insight, I think. Cain wanted what Abel had without having to become the person Abel was. See, he wanted what a lot of us want. He wanted peace. He wanted flourishing. He wanted the good life. He wanted his autonomy. He wanted his freedom. He wanted his control. He wanted his peace without making peace with God. See, and that's what fallen man does. That's what, that's who fallen man is. There's nothing new under the sun. It was true thousands of years ago. It's true today. It's true for you and me. And we are oftentimes, let's be honest, just like Cain in verse 9, when, when, when God fronts us, when God points the finger at us, what does Cain say, verse 9? Am I my brother's keeper? I mean, just a bold, out-and-out, bald-faced lie to God. Another opportunity that God gives for repentance, for change, for confession. Understand, God could have, again, wiped him out. It reminds us, does it not? God, it's, the, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. It's his patience. God is slow to anger. He is abounding in love. And he is inquiring of Cain. He's pursuing Cain. He's, he's questioning Cain. He's drawing out Cain. Yes, he's confronting him. But Cain doesn't have ears to hear. And so it says God pronounces judgment upon him. And look down in verse 16. It says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod. That word Nod literally means the place of wandering. See, Moses is trying to tell something. He's saying because of Cain's heart, he has no home with God. He has no place with his creator. So these are hard things. These are tough things that we need to know about ourselves and our natural condition, about the people who are around us. It's the condition of every human heart things we need to know about people. But secondly, there's also things in this text that we need to know about the world. So after this judgment, where, where Cain has sort of pleaded his case, look at verse 13, verse 13 God, this is more than I can bear. Then it says that, that God, this is amazing, even in this place where Cain is refusing to repent, God still gives him grace. God still gives him grace. And says, I'm going to send you out, Cain. And Cain's concerned that there's going to be some sort of justice enacted upon him. And it says that God places a mark upon him. And I've read the commentaries. Just to let you know, no one has any idea what this really means, okay? And so I could pretend and say it's this. But, but, but let me offer what I think might be one piece of this. Of how God's grace manifested itself, not just to Cain but to all of human history and fallen humanity. And that is the capacity 
despite our evil, our wickedness, and our sin, to still flourish in this world. Now look down at verse 17. I just want to highlight a few things it says were accomplished or God allowed to be accomplished through Cain and his progeny, his descendants. And understand, these are people who did not know the Lord. These are people who did not call upon the name of the Lord. And it is an impressive piece of accomplishment that humans have been able to to undergo. Look at verse 17. He talks about building cities. They're raising livestock. They're writing music. They're inventing instruments. They're, they're, they're ushering in the Iron Age, the Bronze Age. They're making tools. They're, they're in a sense, if you want to kind of put all that into one thing, God has given them the capacity to create culture. God has given them the, the capacity to do amazing things. You know, two of the, the, the greatest geniuses of the 20th century, and you know I'm going to go there, Walt Disney and Steve Jobs. Okay, I want you to think for a minute. Okay, Walt Disney and Steve Jobs. If those two just humans had not existed, how utterly different your life would be. Just on a human level. I'm not talking about spiritually. I'm just talking about what you watch, what you view, what you enjoy, where you vacation, how you talk, how you communicate, how you... I mean, just, I want you to think about that. And yet... For everything that we know, neither of these men knew the Lord. Now we may say, how how is it? Now we're going to talk about why in a second, but we would say, how is it that God has given humans the capacity to flourish, to create culture despite our sin? And it's very simple. We're made in the image of God. See, by virtue of God's common grace... God has given humanity an amazing capacity to create. Whether it's art or architecture or exhibits or food or shows or technology or nutrition or science or medicine or health, it's an amazing thing. We live in an amazing world. God has given us humans the capacity to to do incredible things then why, why then does culture not save us? And here we find the answer in the text as well. You see, man destroys the very culture that he creates. Look at verse 17. Just, you, you'll, you'll see, the, you'll see these, these parallel curses that man just, in destruction, that man brings upon himself. Verse 17, it says that, that Cain builds a city in opposition to what God told him to do, but he names it after his son. So we name cities after our sons and daughters when we want people to remember who? Us. It says in verse 19 that Lamech is the first one to take multiple wives. See, we know God's original design was one man, one woman, but from here on, this is a plague that Um, is a scourge upon the history of humanity from this point forward. And we see it played out again and again. And every time there is polygamy, make no mistake, there is complexity. (laughs) There there are big problems. You don't have to watch a reality show to to, to figure that out. We see in verse 23, it's it's a violent culture. 
When Lamech is boasting about killing this man, literally in the, in the original language, it's a, it's a young boy who's being exploited because of this man's anger. And you may say, oh, come on, Pastor Paul. This is all just primal. Come on. This is like ancient history. This, is, this, is, this, this happened way before the sophistication of the 21st century. We're way beyond this sort of stuff. And we have to ask, are we? Are we? See, we're still doing the same things. Whether it's sex trafficking or abortion or porn or the exploitation of women. See, mankind is not getting better and better. We are not progressing into a greater good. Someone did the the stats on this. In the 20th century... Began with the war to end all wars, right? When they totaled up all of the dead from World War I, World War II, all the different conflicts across the globe, the the revolutions, the the conflicts, the skirmishes, totaled almost 125 million deaths. So when theologians talk about man being totally depraved, doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be because God's grace, common grace restrains evil, but it does mean that every area of our life and heart and existence and culture is infected with sin. Folks, one of the things we have to understand about this world that we live in and about the people that live in it, that sin is not a mistake. Sin is a condition. It's original. It's inherited. It is passed on just like we were doing this child dedication this morning we're praying that the gospel would be passed on from generation to generation mankind passes on sin from generation to generation genesis 8 21 the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth ephesians 2 3 among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. To which you all say, thank you very much, Pastor Paul. This is going to be a great Father's Day dinner, right? I was asked the question before, why, why, why doesn't God just kill off the human race? Why doesn't God just kill off the line of, of Cain at this point? He could have. Why doesn't God just destroy everyone now, someone might ask. This tells us, I think, something in the text that's much more important than things you need to know about yourself or things you need to know about people or the world. There's some things that you and I need to know about God. See, Tim Keller makes this point in this passage on Cain and Abel when he says this. One of the reasons that God waits before destroying mankind. One of the reasons that God, that God sort of keeps his powder dry and lets Cain and his progeny and the human race go on is not just so that they can create culture, although that's part of it, but it's primarily because God wants them to repent. God desires no man to perish, but for all to come to know him. 
God gives Cain three opportunities to turn his heart to him. We don't know what happens to Cain. We just assume that he continued on in his sin. But this passage is here, the writers of the New Testament tell us, so that we can learn from them. This is why 1 John quotes from this text. And listen to what John's warning is to us. He says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Now, if you hear that, and if you're paying close attention to the text, you know that this presents to us a massive problem. Two, two problems. One is, then how in the world can fallen man ever save himself? And number two, Pastor Paul, Abel is dead. The seed of promise, the line that was going to produce the Messiah that would rise up and crush the head of Satan and defeat sin and death once and for all. Where is the hope in this text? Genesis 4, 25 through 26. We'll look at this more this week. But as this whole thing is going on, and we're going to see this all throughout Genesis, as evil is abounding through the line of Cain, God, God is always at work doing something greater. Because it says in Genesis 4 that, And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. I mentioned this last week. Let me say it again. The, the Old Testament is not a bunch of neat stories assembled together to teach nice moral lessons, kind of like Aesop's fables. See, the Old Testament is chock full of the gospel. See, we, we know that, and we, and we see this principle. Remember, Paul tells us where sin increased, what does he say? Grace abounded. And here we see that although Cain and his progeny are seemingly winning the day, that God is raising up another seed from the line of Seth. A seed, Jesus Christ the Messiah, who is, com- who is coming to reverse the curse of Lamech. Let me, now, you heard me say this before. Let me say it again. You can study God's word all your life. You can read passages over and over and over again and sometimes not see things that, you, that, that were always there. It's amazing how God's word does that. Here's something that I saw, have seen with the help of others, of course, in this passage that I had never seen before. Look at verse 24. It says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Hmm. Where have we heard that one before in the New Testament? Jesus, how many times are we to forgive our brother? Seven times? What does Jesus say? No, no, no. Seventy times seven. You see, this, this thing that Jesus calls us to to forgive one another, the reason we can do that 
is because of the character of our loving, forgiving, gracious Father who forgives us 70 times 7. If, it's, if we're to do it with one another, how much more so? That's the point. Does this reflect the heart and the character of God? See, the Pharisees knew their, knew their Old Testament, right? Disciples knew their Old Testament. See, Lamech's curse was 70 times 7, and Jesus says, I have a love, a grace, and a mercy. And as James tells us, mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. And so here in this text, it tells us that the blood of Abel is crying out. Let me just ask you a question. Where do you feel the blood of Abel crying out in your life? Where, where in your life do you feel like righteousness has been thwarted? God, I, I've done it all the right way, but it, it's, it's, this has happened in my family, or this has happened in my marriage, or this has happened in my job, or this has happened in my body and my health. It seems, God, that, that righteousness has not prevailed. It seems that there is only despair and sin and sickness and misery where do you feel the blood of abel in your life the blood is crying out hebrews 12 24 tells us exactly what we're to do with that and it says and to jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of abel Christian, do you know that if you know Jesus Christ, that there is a better word for you than the blood of Abel? There is a better blood for you. It is the blood of Jesus Christ, whose whose blood covers over your wickedness, your sin, your evil intentions, the, 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 the dark places in your heart, the dark places in your life. He's not destroying the world because... He wants us to come to know him, to repent, to turn to faith in him. But for you, maybe that moment is today. Wherever you are, wherever you've been, whatever's happened, because of Jesus Christ, there is a better word for you and for me. Let's pray.